15,000 square miles of quiet space, which means that the residents within the quiet zone of those towns live very different lives than most Americans, meaning they have no cell phones, no microwave ovens, and no garage door openers. No, yeah. No kidding, nothing wireless, nothing. Uh, the site director, Karen O'Neill, says, you know, we can access the internet like anybody else. It's just that when I leave my desk, the internet doesn't follow me. And then she made this comment, though. She said, you know, um, for all of that, when I watch a soccer game, every parent on that field is watching the kids playing soccer. Nobody's looking at their cell phones. And nobody's worrying about that. And you really don't see that struggle with the parents where they, you know, have to talk to their kids and say, you know, you got to put those phones away. And then they say, did I have to? And then there's a struggle. And then they sneak the phone underneath their table and text their friends on the slide. There's none of that there. None of that there. The National Radio Quiet Zone. So my imagination started directing me to what that would be like to live there. Right? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you, can you imagine not suffering from nomophobia? Nomophobia? Yeah, it's, uh, the, uh, it's, sep it, it's cell phone separation anxiety. Yeah, am I the only one who's felt that? I'm on my way to the store. <gasps> I left my phone at home. Oh, 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 oh. Now, should I go back? I'm in the parking lot at the store. What's going to happen? All right, breathe, breathe, breathe. None of that there. None of that there. And and can you imagine church on Sunday morning in the National Radio Quiet Zone? You know, I mean, where the pastor gets through both services without a cell phone going off. What a pleasant fantasy. <laughs> Let's relocate. Who's with me? It, it's interesting. So the quiet zone is an example of how a type of solitude can foster community. And that's what I would like to consider this morning here. I, I would like to invite us into a quiet zone. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to Psalm 131. We're in a teaching series about the importance of community. and We've talked about the loneliness epidemic in our culture and, and how there's nothing like the blessing of belonging. God has wired us for relationships. God has wired us to be in community. There's, there's no such thing as Jesus and me. Uh, one commentator reminded me that the phrase personal Savior is, is not in the Scripture. Jesus came to redeem people. And that comes by pursuing Christ together. And the Lord's Prayer does not begin with my Father, but our Father. And 
And the glory of being God's people is that we pursue Christ together as his people. But then last week we talked about the fact that when we do get together, we quickly realize how broken we are. And that requires forgiving and forbearing love. A love that walks through a path, a journey from pseudo-community, where we come and we're polite to one another because we don't want to rock the boat or anything like that. But, but then after a while, you know, you just, you just say, no, how come you're late 10 minutes for meetings? Or how come you do this? Or why do you do that? And then there's pushback. Why do you ask why I do that? And, and then that leads from pseudo-community to chaos. And there's a temptation when you're in chaos to want to go back to pseudo-community. Because at least then, you know, I don't have to risk conflict or friction and, and you can do that, but you stay in pseudo-community. You need to keep going. Chaos leading to emptiness, where you, you really seek to understand someone else's life story and their brokenness, and you listen more than you talk, and then, and then their brokenness leads to your brokenness, and there's vulnerability, and, and you stay through that path, and that leads to true community. True community. There are only broken people at this church. And the pastor is broken too. Man, that's a, that is a difficult, hard, humbling path to walk. But one we must if we are to, if we are to have true community. Pseudo-community, chaos, emptiness, true community. True community. And when you get to true community, it's sweet. Now, how do you keep True community. How do you keep true community? Answer, solitude. Solitude. And that takes us to Psalm 131. How solitude with God brings a spiritual composure that then allows me to be of benefit to the community of God. And so Psalm 131 tells us how to be alone with God. Healthy solitude with God, bringing a healthy soul, which then brings healthy community. Let's consider this brief psalm. Quiet your, quiet your hearts, would you please? And listen. Oh, Lord. My heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. This is God's word. It's been said that this is one of the shortest psalms to read and one of the longest psalms to learn. 
And why? Well, some of us simply can't stand the sound of quiet. Some of us seek community because we're afraid to be alone. We can't endure the solitude, so we rush to others as a diversion, but then we get disappointed because that diversion wasn't what we hoped it would be, and then we blame others in the community for that which is really our own fault. And because we won't learn, our souls become diseased, and then we bring that disease into the community And what is that disease? The disease is the disease of a discontented discontented noisiness. This is why Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book Life Together warned, "Let, let him who cannot be alone beware of community. I mean, think about this psalm here. This is... What does it say? A song of a sense of David. So, you know, this is not the word of a desert mystic. This is King David, the youngest of Jesse's sons, handsome, ruddy, shepherd boy, slayer of Goliath, husband of a harem, father of many children, battle-tested warrior, adulterer, and by proxy, a killer. Uh, a poet, warrior, king. So, this is not the resume of a perfect man. It's a glimpse into the life of a man whose heart is after God's heart. And it's the glimpse of a life of a man who, by God's grace, has learned spiritual composure. In, in Psalm 131, David's heart isn't noisy, he doesn't have a hurried spirit, he's not edgy, he's calm. He's at peace, no regrets, no remorse, no irritation. His his soul is as as still as uh, Fred Rogers of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You see? Go see Won't You Be My Neighbor and and take your blood pressure before you go and then after you go. It'll it'll just go down. There's a stilled soul right there. And that's, that's the heart of this psalm here. And and because the heart has been stilled, when David rejoins the community, he now can be a contributor. So the O Lord of verses 1 and 2 lead to the O Israel of verse 3. First two verses are a prayer to God. The last verse is an address to God's people. You see that? So so the point of the spiritual discipline of solitude is not to give us introverts a breather from the rest of you extroverted vampires. That's not the point, okay? Uh, Sometimes our solitude is just selfish privacy. Just because I'm introverted doesn't excuse me from ministry to people. It just changes how I prepare for that. I ask us, is, is your soul still this morning? Is there any noise going on inside of you? Is your heart dominated by hurry and worry and weariness? Why is that? Why is this a struggle? And how can, how can we become spiritually composed? 
Well, Psalm 131 invites us to this quiet zone. Intentional time with the Lord in his word and prayer so that I may strengthen others with the strength I have received from God. And um, church family. So uh, 20 some odd years ago, a brother in Christ from our congregation named Marshall uh, wanted to set up an appointment with me. And so we got together and I'm trying to think in my head, what does Marshall want, right? Okay, what problem does Marshall have? Okay, what's it going to be? Is it marriage? Is it money? Is it work? What, you know? And that's what I'm thinking going into the meeting. Marshall sits down, we talk uh, briefly, uh, introduction, and then he says to me, there's someone that I am really concerned about in our church, and I want to talk to you about him. And I said, well, who is it? And he said, Randy Boltinghouse. And I said, well, tell me more, you know. He, he said, you know, your message the other day, you said X, Y, Z. But it, it wasn't the X, Y, Z. It was, it was how you said it. It's how you say what you say. And you just seemed, you seemed worrisome and anxious. And frankly, pastor, that makes us worrisome and anxious. Because we take our cues from you. That was Marshall's lesson to me that day. And I've not forgotten that. Um, and I would just say, parents, your children take your cues from you. Okay? Whoever you lead, they take their cues from you. That's what makes this important. That's what makes the, the willingness in our, our, our worrisome, scary world, that's what makes entering in and, and mastering the discipline of solitude so important. I know this, the last thing a hurried, worried, wearisome congregation needs is a hurried, worried, wearisome pastor. So I need these verses to remind me of who I need to lean on most in solitude so that when I come together with you, I can, I can be a, a, an open channel of God's blessing. So. And this is the journey of a proud heart that becomes a humbled heart, that becomes a weaned heart, that then, then becomes a hopeful heart. And that's what I want us to see as we look through these verses. Solitude with Christ first humbles proud hearts. Verse 1, O oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up, my eyes are not raised too high. David's talking about pride there. Pride. One of the ways to appreciate Psalm 131 is to consider the anti-version of this. Here's the anti-Psalm 131. It goes like this. O self, my heart is proud. I'm self-absorbed. My eyes are arrogant. I despise all others. I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. 
So of course I'm noisy and restless inside. It comes naturally, like a starving, whiny baby on its mother's lap. Like a starving, whiny baby. I'm restless with worry and impatient with demands. I scatter my hopes all over everywhere, chasing for that one big Powerball payday. Kind of gives a different understanding. Helps you understand that a little better, doesn't it? You consider it's opposite. Remember Alice in Alice in Wonderland? She was either too big or too small. She was never quite the right size, and as a result, she was disoriented, and that can happen to us. Pride makes us the wrong size. We like to fashion ourselves accomplished and independent, and that affects how we see others. And solitude will change that because there's no other audience than the Lord. You, one best, best commentary line this week in the study. Here it is. Do you know what the difference is between God and us? He never thinks he's us. Before you, Lord, my heart's not lifted up, David says, because my heart has no reason to be proud. Total depravity is standing before total reality. Total truth, white hot holiness. You cannot stand before a holy God with pretentious superiority. So solitude has disinfected the pollution in David's soul because before the blazing white hot holiness of the great I am, all David can say is, I'm not. My heart is not. My eyes are not. I, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. Hmm. Implication, some things in life are too great and too marvelous for me. David here has made peace with his intellectual, emotional, and physical boundaries. Some things are just beyond me. And David, David has learned to say, I don't know. He's learned to say, you know, I can't. I, I don't know, and I've stopped trying to figure out what can't be figured out. I no longer try to pursue impossibilities. Now, Americans don't want to hear that. And we want to hear, we want to hear, if you can believe it, you can achieve it. We want to hear, you can grow up and be anything you want to be, Okay. I want to play basketball in the NBA. Do I look like someone who can play basketball in the NBA? The answer to that question is no, church family. Yeah. Okay, well, I want to play golf. I want to be a PGA golfer. No, you don't. No, you, no, you don't. Do you know you, that right now, as I'm preaching, someone is at a driving range. They're going to put in 12 hours for the next year to try just a razor. There's no, you're not going to. No, don't. But you can play on Labor Day. Okay. I want to be a brain surgeon. No, you don't. No, you, you, you have a hard time painting the edges. Are you going to fiddle with someone's brain? No. I'll let you preach, though. See? David is going, there's just, there are some things too great and too marvelous for me. And I've... I've, I've <laughs> I've stopped trying to pursue the impossible. 
I want to play basketball in the NBA. I want to be on the, I want to be, I, I will make that person respect me. Really. And what happens when we try to control the uncontrollable? What happens when we try to take responsibility for someone else's moods? What happens when we live for a success and achievement and likes? What happens when we obsess? Most, most of the restless noise inside our soul stems from trying to pursue what cannot be pursued. In, in 2 Timothy 2.22, the Apostle Paul said to Timothy, flee youthful passions. Passions. That word passions. Uh, yes, it includes sexual immorality, but it's broader than that. More likely, according to one commentator, Paul refers to passions as a headstrong enthusiasm, which leads to impatience and immaturity and a quarrelsome spirit. Uh, passions as in a desire for novelty, a restless pursuit of the next big thing, climbing ladders to nowhere. Flee that, Paul says. But, but when you pursue that which God has called you to pursue, you're going to find it. Like what? Well, keep reading in that verse. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Those are relational traits. And that's how a proud heart becomes a weaned heart through the proper pursuits. So the point of the passage is not stop pursuing, but pursue selectively, pursue wisely, pursue according to God's will. Solitude with Christ calms, uh, uh, humbles the proud heart, and then it calms the weaned heart. Verse 2, but I have calmed and quieted my soul. Uh, in the Hebrew, uh, that language is actually an oath, meaning if I have not calmed and quieted my soul, may God do so to me. So in other words, he's, he's declaring, no, I have done this. I've calmed and quieted my soul. I have, I have leveled my soul. That's the word picture. Like a bulldozer leveling a building and, and, and removing the bumps and the lumps and the tree stumps and the debris until the site is clean and settled, flat. To quiet means to say shh to your worries and your irritations and your angers and your anxieties. Be still. Be still. It's hard to do that, isn't it? That's why David uses the word weaning. Weenie, it's not pleasant. <laughs> it's not pleasant. I spoke with my mother this morning, and she was asking me, well, how is my great-grandson Elias? I said, oh, he's six months old, Mom. And I'm telling you, he is the happy, he's a happy baby. He gets changed. He's fed. He's carried wherever. He is living the dream. Pretty soon he's going to be weaned. Oh, that'll be fun. It's not pleasant, right? He, because he wants mom's milk now. And he thinks he knows better than his mother. And if mom doesn't deliver, heaven help us all. Some adults display such infantile 
childishness if they've not been weaned and they're angry and anxious and discontent and critical and nothing's right and well I'll say this there have been a few infantile souls who have conversed with me in the fireside room I just want you to know pastor I've been to almost every church in this town every church in this town and none of them meet my needs This person needs to be weaned. Can you imagine an entire congregation of unweaned believers? You know what's worse than that? An unweaned pastor. Weaning is a necessary unpleasantness. And it's, a, it's noisy. It's marked by misunderstanding. I, I, I no longer feel like I did when I was first a Christian. Does that mean I'm no longer a Christian? Has God left me? Have I done something wrong? No, 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 no. No, God has not abandoned you. You've not done anything wrong. You are being weaned. The apron strings have been cut. You're free to come to God or not to come to God. See? But when you're weaned, you can, sit, you can sit on the Lord's lap and he can spoon in food. You can see it. There's a bigger world. See? David doesn't occupy himself with things too marvelous. See, an unweaned child just wants something from his mother, but a weaned child just wants to be with mom. See the difference? David has stopped occupying himself with things too marvelous because he realizes that faith is the, one of the ways that he can know. It's not that we stop studying, it's that we just have a different perspective. We discover a level of trust deeper than our intellect can take us. So the, the, the Green Bank Telescope, that kind of knowledge can teach us how something works, but knowledge from Scripture, theological knowledge, can tell us why it works. You want your soul weaned? Consider Deuteronomy 29.29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. So some of us hesitate giving our lives to God because he has not answered all of our questions about why did this death happen? Why did I get cancer? Why did I lose my child? Why did I lose my job, my marriage, my house, my health? I love you. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. There are some things God's just not telling. He's not. And he doesn't have to. He does not have to explain himself. Are you willing to trust him anyway? See? What I would ask us to consider that this verse says is that for all that is secret to the Lord our God, there are things that he has revealed. My goodness. Let's pay attention to that. Let's pay attention to, to what he's revealed both in creation and in his word. And supremely, God has revealed to us Jesus, his son, who is the ultimate revelation, the mystery of godliness. God became and put on flesh 
That has been revealed to us. The mystery of, of how holiness could die ignominiously on the cross and rescue us for love. What a mystery. But that's been revealed to us. God has revealed to us his face and his name is Jesus. And he's revealed his power and his mighty resurrection and his ascension and the sending of his Holy Spirit upon us that we would carry the Spirit of Christ. Those things have been revealed and they belong to us. They're gospel nourishment. So ponder that living word as Mary pondered all of that which was happening to Jesus in her heart. And we do that in solitude with God who loves us and gave himself for us. And who, when we meet with him, he never says, what, you again? God never says that. He's not annoyed with us. He's not angry with us. Why wouldn't we want intentional time alone with a king who delights over us? So here is, here's the homework for us. It's Jesus' own words in Mark 6. 31, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. Hmm. What does that mean? That means turn off your phone. Bring your other wireless. Bring your Bible. If you don't have one, take one in the pouch in front of you. Put your name in it. Call it yours. Take that with you. And go out and go outside. And do nothing. Don't try to make anything happen. Read and listen. Read and listen. Solitude is not a private therapeutic place. It's a place of conversion. So says Henri Nouwen. It's the place where the old self dies and the new self is born. In solitude, I get rid of the scaffolding. I get rid of my scaffolding. No friends to talk with, no calls to make, no meetings to attend. It's just me, vulnerable, weak, sinful, deprived, broken, nothingness. And it's in this nothingness that I've got to face my solitude, a nothingness so dreadful that everything in me wants to run back to my friends and, and my work and my distractions so that I can forget my nothingness and make myself believe that I'm worth something when the desert is calling me. And our Father says, you're my child. What do you need more than that? The wisdom of the desert is that the confrontation with our own frightening nothingness forces us to surrender ourselves totally to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when that happens, church family, the, the humbled heart and the weaned heart then becomes the hopeful heart. Solitude with Christ stirs hope in the hearts of others. The direction of this psalm changes in the last verse, doesn't it? The O Lord of verse 1 becomes O Israel in verse 3. And David's hopeful heart can now rejoin the community to share the hope that he has received from God himself. And by hope, I mean this. Biblical hope 
is the confident expectation of a guaranteed result that changes the way I live. So Christianity is not some neurotic dependence, but a childlike trust. The, the God we serve does not indulge our infantile whims. Rather, we entrust to him our eternal destinies. We're not naive infants with no identity apart from feeling comforted and catered to. Rather, we've been given an identity by God himself. Here it is, O Israel, but elsewhere in Scripture it is chosen one, elect, beloved, saints, brothers, sisters, slaves of Christ, temple of the living God, friends, the called out ones, royal priests, heirs. This is who we are. This is who you are not who you say you are. You are not who others say you are. You are who God says you are. No wonder Psalm 131 is one of the shortest to read, but one of the longest to learn. But learn it we must. Solitude with God. To receive strength from Him. So that out of the overflow we can share that strength and hope and love with one another. Here, your church family. So we are going to pray together. And I would like for us to pray this song. Um, and then we're going to have another song to sing as we prepare for communion. But what I'd like for us to do is just, this, can we just almost whisper this psalm and uh, have it quiet our hearts here? Let's go. Here we go. Oh Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O oh Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. God's people said,